Ecclesiastes 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 12. You can scan the QR code if you want to follow along on the Bible app. Thanks for being here this morning in person. And those who are joining us online and those in traditions and those in kindred, In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has set out to use his wisdom to look at life. Unfortunately, he uses his wisdom apart from God. It's his own wisdom. There are ushers coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. You can borrow one this morning. His experiments, nonetheless, have have been very helpful to me and, and, and to us, reminding us that apart from God, there is nothing in this life that satisfies. Are you there yet? Do you believe that? He is striving to find out whether there is any value in life apart from God. We do the same thing when we look at life and we scratch our heads wondering, is there anything in this life that makes sense? Here's the way that we ended last week. Chapter 5, 18 through 20 says this. He says, this is what I observe to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them. For this is their lot. He goes on. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. So we start to teeter on this idea. Wait a minute. There is some good things from God. Verse 20, he concluded last week, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. We concluded last week that when enough is enough, when we look at life and we go, well, enough is enough, I am satisfied, and we acknowledge that all that we have is from God, we enjoy life to the fullest when we get to that place. The, the best a person can do who is not seeking after God, the best a person can do in this life who's not seeking after God, who's not seeking eternal life, is to chase happiness. That's the best they can do. What else is there outside of God? The pursuit of happiness consumes people who choose to look to themselves and not to God. Hopefully you already know this. God is always good, but life is not fair. Illness is not fair. Unemployment is not fair. Divorce is not fair for those who are impacted by it. Bullying is not fair. The fact that oftentimes sinners seem to benefit more than the saints, that's not fair. War is not fair. Being taken advantage of is not fair. Abuse is not fair. Cruelty is not fair. Weather is not fair, right? How do you respond when life doesn't treat you fairly? Do you get mad? Do you get depressed? Do you get bitter? Do you give up? Do you lose faith? Do you seek revenge? This morning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we get to listen in to Solomon whine and complain about the unfairness of life. Remember, Solomon is in this pursuit for the good life. 
out to prove that there can be satisfaction outside of God. That's what he's, that's what he, that's, that's the mission that he is on. Have you heard the poem, The Dash? I'm gonna read just a couple lines from it. <clears throat> I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. First, if you're following along, live your dash focused on eternity. First two verses in chapter six. Here we go. There's another serious tragedy, he begins. I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die, and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy, he says. So Solomon has witnessed something evil in his life that he wants to point out, something that, that happens to a lot of people. He points out two tragedies. First, God gives us everything that we have out of his generosity, out of his kindness, including wealth for some and honor for others. In fact, everything we could ever want and ask for, he gives us. But then the author and the sustainer of life, this is what Solomon says, then our, our God, our creator turns around and he doesn't allow us to even enjoy it to the fullest. Reason number one, we all die. Time runs out, game over. No opportunity to swipe the card or put more coins in to keep it going. When our time is done here on earth, it's done. What a tragedy, he says. Reason number two, even though we may live a long life, everything we work so hard for stays right here. We are born empty-handed and we die empty-handed. Everyone dies. There's no distinction, doesn't matter how much money you have, how healthy you are, how important you are, how many good deeds that you have done, how generous you've been, everyone dies. Again, death is that great equalizer. It's what we have in common. It levels the playing field for everyone. Many people work hard to extend the years that they have on this earth through, through diet and, and through exercise and making smart risk adverse choices, but, but not nearly as many work so hard at their eternal life, their spiritual life, preparing for eternity. And so he points out we tend to live short Sighted, focused on the here and now while losing sight of the forever. We work for all of the stuff that we have and then we only get to enjoy it for a very, very short time. While those who follow us get the greatest amount of the enjoyment from it. How fair is that, he says. Others get to enjoy the work of our hands. Even a stranger, people we don't even know get to benefit from it. It reminds us that all we have can be taken from us in an instant by death, robbery, catastrophe, 
being taken advantage of, being cheated, stock market crash. How many times have you heard of people that live their entire life preparing for their retirement and then, and then one or the other dies or, or somebody gets sick and they can't even enjoy it? It doesn't seem fair. By the way, I have a new plan for retirement. I read an article this past week, and don't run out and do this, because this was my idea after I read the article. There's a couple, you know what they're doing for retirement? They're living on cruise ships. Did you read this? They're going from one cruise ship to the next cruise ship to the next cruise ship, because here's what they figured. On average, they spend $100 a night And if you do the math, where they're from, the average home costs $600,000 and their mortgage would be like $45,000 a year. So they're literally living on cruise ships, spending $100 a night, all their food is taken care of, their housing is taken care of, and they get to see the world. Brilliant. I don't know what they, Lori and I are talking about this, I don't know what they do in the hurricane season, but nine months of the year, it's brilliant, right? But sometimes even retirement's not fair. For someone who does not know God or who doesn't look to God, all they have is the enjoyment of things. When things are all you have to look to for the enjoyment of life, when you cannot look to things any longer, enjoyment and happiness are both very nearsighted. Poof, it's all gone. Life is up. The things you once looked to are gone, no longer with you. And that helps us make sense of Solomon's opening words in chapter 6. Let me read it again now with that mindset. There is another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die, and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless. A sickening tragedy. I want to share with you Matthew 6, 19 through 21. You might be familiar with a couple of verses. And it says this. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. And so I thought of this phrase, follow the money and find your focus. Find your focus and find your heart. You have two treasure chests, one here on this earth and one in heaven. The scripture teaches us not to fill the treasure chest here on this earth, why? Because it can be eaten by moths. And the idea there was that they had these little moths, these these, uh, clothing moths that would get into the closets and eat all these rich, fancy garments and they would destroy them. Uh, Rust or decay over time can, can become useless, make it useless, and it can be taken from us. All those things when we focus our attention on earthly treasure chests and we're just filling this chest, life will always be confusing and unfair. Instead, we're instructed to focus our attention on the treasure chest we have in heaven, or, or what you might call the kingdom of God. Invest in the things of his kingdom. Give your time, your talents, your treasures to the things that can make an eternal difference. 
Maybe God is challenging you to resolve with him your sacrificial tithe and, and, and what you give to his work. Is he stirring you to volunteer by using your talents and gifts to advance the gospel message? Maybe you don't know how or where to get involved. And I would say, if, if that's the case, just ask a staff member. And you're like, well, I don't know any staff members. Um, I happen to be on staff, so you can ask me. If you don't know anybody else, get a look at my face, find me and say, hey, what, how, how can I get involved in this, in this church? Ask yourself, which treasure chest am I focused more on? And remember, your earthly treasure chest will always having you look at life as unfair. And he goes on. He says, live your dash. We started with focused on eternity. And he says, preparing for eternity, verses three through six. Look at verse three. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old. But if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be born dead. Here's what one commentator wrote. One could have the things men dream of, which in the Old Testament terms meant children by the score and years of life by the thousands and still depart unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. Verse three, a proper burial in that, uh, in that culture meant that a, that a person uh, found rest. That was the indicator. An unburied person in that culture meant that that person had not been given rest from the Lord. He was unlamented and dishonored. A child without life, a child born without life, would never have to endure all of life's unfairness and disappointments and frustrations and futilities. Whereas a man, this is his comparison, who lives for 2,000 years and has all of these children that are mentioned, does. But we really don't need Solomon to tell us how unfair life is, do we? We all know people who have been taken advantage of. People who live in conditions that we can't imagine. People who have lost their retirement. People who, who couldn't even get into the hospital to see a loved one who's, who died from COVID. How fair is that? We are aware, and in some cases, we live the unfairness of life. Verse four, his birth would have been meaningless and he would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't even have had a name and he would never have seen the sun or known of his existence. Yet he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. He might live a thousand years twice over but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, Solomon says, what's the use? Could have lived a thousand years twice again. Still no peace. Still no contentment. In fact, if his desire was happiness outside of God. But like everyone else, he also must die. So he's received all of these things, but his soul can't be satisfied. And so he asks, what's the use? 
What's the benefit if a person lives an exorbitant number of years and has everything his heart desires but does not have God? What's the use? Keep in mind, there is no mention of eternity here at all. His evaluation of life, again, is shallow and has everything to do with natural man, has nothing to do with the spiritual man. His evaluation, though, is spot on. It makes total sense, doesn't it? Think of it like this. A person who was created by God, who was born by having been made in the image of God, who's been given value by God, but chooses to live their life apart from God, is found to have no peace or contentment at the end of life. Makes sense. What a raw and yet humble reminder of what life is and will be aside from God. It is dark and it is hopeless. For a secular person, life is a pointless pathway to extinction. It's a good reminder for all of us that unsaved people, people who don't look to God, approach life very different than a saved person who knows God is everything. For a believer, life is a pathway to eternity. I want you to hear 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Listen to this. Paul writes this. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Paul's saying that if we do not have the hope of the resurrection or the hope of eternal life, if there is no eternity in Christ and this life is all that we have, if this life is all that we're focusing on because there is no future or there is no eternity, we have reason to be most miserable. Since I didn't talk enough about golf last week, I want to continue using it as an analogy. Maybe I'm just getting the itch. Um, Spring is coming, hopefully. In golf, it is common for amateurs to focus on the ball in the golf swing. You stand up to the ball and you see this little white ball down there and you're like, I need to hit that. And I need to hit that thing as hard as I can because the harder I hit that thing, the further it's gonna go. And that makes sense from being a former baseball player, right? You're just gonna hit the ball as hard as you absolutely can. But here's the problem. When someone is focused on the ball, they forget about the swing path. So they'll do whatever they have to do to hit that ball as hard as they can. But the swing path, in fact, is way more important than hitting the ball. When one focuses on their swing path, it has been said like this, the ball is just in the way. It's between the back swing and the follow through. It just happens to be there. The Bible in Ephesians 1 says we were chosen in him before the beginning of time. Psalm 139, 15 and 16 says this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Bible also tells us God's children will live for all eternity in his presence. So... Why the analogy? Life 
The few years that we have here on this earth is the ball that exists between eternity past and eternity future. And when we spend all of our time focused on this life, we lose sight of the path. This is just a stopping place. This is just temporary. We're just passing through. Live your dash focused, live your dash prepared, live your dash moving toward eternity. We're going to get to verses 7 through 12. Starting in verse 7 in this passage and on, we have what some have called under the sun Proverbs. Uh, You can think of it like um, I did this series, Catch 22, when we did Proverbs chapter 22. They're proverbial wisdom statements. And those Proverbs are different than uh, than the the actual book of Proverbs because they have a perspective of life under the sun apart from God. So what we're about to read is a perspective apart from God. A reminder, it's a reminder to get our heads out of the clouds. Nothing wrong with dreaming or having a vision, but not at the cost of enjoying what you have. We can spend a lot of time and energy thinking about what we don't have, taking for granted all that God has given us. So verse seven, all people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So each one's kind of this proverbial statement. Meaning a person who works to eat, to put food on the table, even food does not satisfy. People work their tails off just to survive, but all the work in the world never truly satisfies. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much money you make, it will never be enough. We will always want more. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so we're reminded that we go through this life and we're scratching just for food, but it, it never satisfies. Colossians reminds us that work is not for our identity, which sadly many of us find our identity in what we do. We're reminded that work is for him and his glory. And only when we have that perspective, only when we have that attitude, we experience God's pleasure in what we do. Because when we work for him, our identity is found in him. Verse eight, so are wise people really better than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing after the wind. Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So, there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. Isn't it interesting how he kind of goes back and forth, trying to find purpose in life outside of God, and then he kind of gives these little credits to God um, here and there. So, so Solomon introduces what I would call the battle of the wills. God's primary, his perfect, his eternal will versus our limited human will. In our humanness, I think you would agree, we tend to be stubborn, We tend to be determined, selfish, prideful, believing that we know what's best for our lives. 
You agree with that? So we carve a path, we make decisions and raise our glass to what we believe is best for us. All the while, I wonder if you could identify this, all the while, working quietly in the background is our creator. Little by little, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year, works in our hearts, unfolding his perfect will for our lives. How do we reconcile God's free will with our free will? How can we both have free will? Is God reactive, all-knowing but not all-powerful, and he just adjusts according to our exercised free will? In other words, does his free will act in such a way where he kind of lets us go where we want to go and then he reacts to us and he kind of chases us around and follows us through life? Or is he proactive, all-knowing and all-powerful, and has a way of getting us to choose what he already has for us? This might stretch your mind just a little bit. If he's all-knowing but not all-powerful, does he really have free will? If he is both all-knowing and all-powerful, do we really have free will? In short, open theism suggests that since God and humans are free, God's knowledge is dynamic and God's providence is flexible. Open theism, an erroneous view, by the way, heretical view of scripture, sees it as a plurality of branching possibilities with some possibilities becoming settled as time moves forward, it suggests that God is more reactive than proactive, suggesting the future, as well as God's knowledge of it, is open. So he doesn't know. As one commentator put it, how foolish it is for us to contend with our creator who knows us completely and can see the future and knows everything about our future. So then the question is, do we really have free will? Do you really have free will? Each morning when you get up and you think you're deciding what you're going to do, is that what's happening? We do. But God's primary will has a way to influence our free will to get us to choose what he already has for us. Still sounds like a robot to me. Can we reject his prompting to direct our steps? That's where the question comes in. Of course. That's what we call sin. Living our life and making decisions contrary to God's plan and his will for us. Verse 11, the more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? The more people talk, the less they say. You know anybody like this? It affirms the idea of a quiet person who spews wisdom when they open their mouth. As opposed to a person who's always running their mouth and their wisdom gets lost in their words. Reminds me of the quote by Abraham Lincoln, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, right?
paraphrase of that could be, it's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid. Verse 12, in the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? The only one who knew what would happen before we were created and the only one who knows what will happen after we are gone is God. We have no power to control even the next minute of our lives and certainly not our future. God has given us the mindful capacity to plan, but with the intention he would not only look to our future, that we would not only look to our future, but also the more importantly, we would look to him. So he's given us the capacity, but he gives us the capacity that we might direct our attention towards him. Guess what? The Bible makes it very clear what will happen after this life. Your unsaved neighbor, okay, wait, that's not fair. I'm, a, I'm assuming an, uh, that you have an unsaved neighbor. Let me personalize it. My unsaved neighbor has no clue what's about to happen. An unsaved person goes through life asking the same questions that Solomon asks. Who knows what is good? It sounds really familiar to me. What is good for you may not be good for me. Of course, it's what an unsaved person asks. In a, in a society with no morals or ethics, and Solomon says, who really knows what is good for a man while he lives his empty life the few days on this earth? It passes like a shadow. Who really knows? God knows. Let me leave you with one thing, and then I wanna walk us through what I um, introduced last week the P-R-A-Y here in just a second. <clears throat> Here's the one thing, kind of that last thought I want to leave you with. Let eternity capture your undivided attention. So last week, if you were here, I introduced this, this idea of P-R-A-Y. The P stands for praise, the R stands for repent, the A stands for ask, and the Y stands for yield. So in the quietness of your heart, um, let's begin just where you're at, um, just between you and God, just take some time in the quietness of your heart and just give him praise. Give him praise for life, give him praise for his provision, for his protection. Whatever comes to your mind, just take some time here just for a few seconds and just, just give him praise. Let's take a few seconds and just repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind, to search you. to reveal anything that is in your heart, in your mind, in your life that is contrary to God. And take some time and confess it and turn from it. And the A is for ask. Take some time and just ask the Father, like a child. Ask for more of his presence in your life. Ask for his guiding hand, whatever it is. And then let's take some time and yield 
as we continue our time in worship and as we partake in communion together in just a few minutes.